Good morning, everybody. The scripture I'd like for us to look at today is found in the 11th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. So if you would <clears throat> find that and want to follow along <clears throat> as we read it, beginning in <clears throat> verse 1, we will read through verse 13. Luke 11, verse 1. It came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. That's John the Baptist. So he said to them, When you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And he said to them, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, Yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. And I say to you, ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Next Sunday, as we've been looking at it is Pentecost Sunday. This past Thursday is called Ascension Day, and it marks the day that Jesus ascended into heaven from the mountain after meeting with his disciples, and then he sent them back to Jerusalem. The end of Luke, the 24th chapter, points this out. He said, go back to Jerusalem and wait there until you receive the promise of my Father, and you will be empowered. Stay there until you are empowered with power from on high. The waiting period then of the disciples, they gathered in an upper room. There were 120 roughly of them, and they waited approximately 10 days until Pentecost Sunday. Now, I, I can't review uh, uh, everything we've looked at, 
<clears throat> but thinking in, in, of some words in this last song we sang, who am I that you would care for me? Who am I that you would pay attention to me as a human being? We're so little. That phrase, who am I that you would have regard for me, is from Psalm 8. Great, short, little psalm of the how awesome God is and in the light of how awesome God is that he would pay attention to us, that we would matter to him. We do. In fact, one of the greatest privilege we can even imagine is that God actually not only created us as a dwelling place for him that he wants to dwell in my heart that the God of the universe wants to live in my heart that's over our heads he created us as a place for him to dwell we have to know and I don't need to go into a long drawn out explanation of it but creating us for him as a, to be a dwelling place. Why are we even reading here? Why are we reading something about asking for the Holy Spirit to be given to us? What's that all about? If we were created as a dwelling place in the beginning and he did dwell in us. We know the tragic story the record of Scripture, that in disobeying God, Adam and Eve lost that inner presence. They ceased to be a hospitable place for the Holy Spirit to dwell. They rebelled against Him. He doesn't stay where He is not followed, loved, trusted, walked with. And so in their asserting of their own judgment, it's better than God, they can strike out on their own. They lost that inner life-giving, light-giving, love-giving, warm presence of God. From that point on, unless through God's salvation methods, we're hollow, we're empty. And God's entire seems sometimes very complex. You have the whole sacrificial systems, you have a lot of things. The whole system is very simple. For God to regain that property, my heart, which is His, for Him to regain that and once again resume dwelling in my heart. That's his aim. And here's the other interesting thing about it that is a difficulty. God, though he's a sovereign God, he never coerces us or goes over our free will ever. So while striking out after us to regain our hearts as his rightful dwelling place, he waits for, depends on, 
and responds to our choice as to whether we will open up our hearts and allow him to recapture that which he made. It is, I mentioned last week, I think it was last week, maybe the week before, the, what would we do if I, I owned a dwelling place and renters, <laughs> tenants, evicted me, changed the locks, and I have the decency, I guess you'd say, the kindness, the love, the mercy, to do what? Get the sheriff or take matters into my own hands, batter down the door, do whatever? No. What God said he does. I stand at the door of your heart, the heart I own, I made for a dwelling place, and you, as a result of your rebellion, caused my departure. I knock and ask readmission. What kind of a God would do that? Especially a God who's utterly sovereign, holds our breath in his hand. I live and breathe every breath because of his goodness. Thankfully, God didn't give up on us. He didn't wash his hands, would have been justified, but he didn't. And at that very occasion and ever since in this world, he has been seeking to recapture my heart as his rightful place to dwell. Now, Pentecost then is at the end of at least 1,500 years of the sacrificial system under Moses, all meant to teach of a coming Savior. There were thousands of years prior to that in which Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the patriarchs listened to prophets. God sent his truth to them. He has spent ever since the Garden of Eden until the resurrection and Pentecost Sunday to lay out the plan and complete the plan by which he can move back into my heart and once again we can have fellowship with God. Astounding thought that I can walk and talk with God and that he will. There's a word in that final song um, that I was thinking about whether it was correct or not. Do I need to fire the whole worship team um, for singing heresy? It's the word that he is high and humble, a high and humble king. Now, we understand he's sovereign. He's, he's God. But Jesus came to us humble, meek, and his act of knocking on the door and even the fact that he will condescend from 
lofty infiniteness that he knows all, all power, all knowledge, that he will, if we could say it, humble himself and somehow squeeze himself into our poor, (laughs) dumb hearts. You understand what I mean? That God would, he loves me that much, that he puts up, he says, I know your frame, I remember they're your dust, I made you out of dirt. I know, I know your limitations, but I'm willing to confine myself as God to your little limitations. And I'll live in your heart, and I will teach you, and I will rebuke you, and I'll correct you, and I'll discipline you, and I will make you more and more into my likeness. And then when you physically die, which recalls, unfortunately, but God doesn't mean to be rubbing our faces in it, but we all are going to die, going clear back to the garden. He said, the day you rebel, you'll die. We will. But he said, I'll carry you through that. I will raise you from the dead with a new body in the great resurrection. I'll take you to heaven where you will dwell in my heart and in my home forever. All of this begins to focus down onto Christ's interest into the world. And I've mentioned to you that Christmas we have God with us, Emmanuel. He came to visit us. And then Good Friday and Easter, both the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's Christ, it's God for us. It's doing what only he could do on our behalf and in our place to redeem us. And then Pentecost, which is marked next Sunday, is the final capstone of redemption. And that is God in us. Jesus told the disciples, he is, the Spirit is with you, but he will be in you. That's what Pentecost then is all about. That's what this parable and this exhortation to the disciples that Jesus gave, telling us that there is a request we're to make. A request, Father, give me the Spirit. Now, last Sunday, I hope I could make it clear that there are two works of the Spirit. Jesus said that the first work of God in my heart was to be born of the Spirit. That the Spirit comes into my sin-darkened and deadened soul. He tells us frequently, we are dead in trespasses and sins. I don't have any life. I am dead. I have no response to spiritual things. I can't. That Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born of the Spirit just like you were born of the flesh. I can't 
I can't get into this world unless I'm born of the flesh. And we say to people, um, you know, what was your birthday? Where were you born? What do, what do we say? I don't know, I guess I've just always been here. No. We have a birth date. We trust, we have a birth certificate. We can give the place where we came into this world, where we were born of the flesh. We became a living being. I won't give you the date, my date, um, or you put me on the waiting list for legacy, but um, I can tell you I was born, I came into this world in um, Bluffton, Indiana. Everyone knows where Bluffton, Indiana is. Um, it's about, I think it's around 10 or 12 miles south of Ossian, which is about 15 miles south of Fort Wayne. So that gets a little clearer. Jesus said, you must be born again of the Spirit, just like you were born of the flesh, in order to ever see the kingdom of God. Now, I can see this world because I came into this world at a given point. I was born of the flesh. But I had to be born of the Spirit to see God's kingdom and see that unseen world, which the truth of the matter is, is truer and more real than this one. And I can tell you where that happened. I can't give you the date. I don't remember the exact day, but it was in January of 1970. Kneeling by my bed in my room in the parsonage in Eugene, Oregon, where my dad pastored. I was born of the Spirit. My sins were forgiven, and I got up off of my knees with clear skies over my head. I was born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit came into my heart. And I mentioned last week the apparent conundrum. If the Spirit comes into my heart in birth of the Spirit, being born again, he can't come in in pieces or parts because he's a person. So I receive all of the Spirit when he comes into my heart in conversion, when I get saved, when I become a Christian. Then why, why are we talking about, what's this talk of Jesus, of John the Baptist? John the Baptist, in fact, said, I baptize with water for the washing away of your sins. But there's one coming after me he baptizes you again, but it's not with water. It's with the Holy Spirit and with fire. It's a, there's a washing cleansing. There's a fire purging cleansing. That work, Jesus said, I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So if I receive the Spirit in birth, then why am I supposed to pray 
for the Spirit in some further, which the Bible calls being baptized with the Spirit. Seems a little confusing. We know it can't be that I only have part of the Holy Spirit and I need to get more. We know finally that the only solution is that I have His full Spirit in my heart, but He doesn't have full possession of me. I still have in my heart a principle, Paul called it, a law, that whenever I want to do good, he says, I find evil present with me. And I find a law within me. I'm not even choosing to be, say, bitter, unbelieving, self-centered, resistant to God's will when it's not to my pleasing. I'm not even doing that, Paul says, but I sense that it's in here, and I'm powerless to get rid of it. And James gives us a very useful term. He calls that being double-minded, or literally, it's double-souled. I have two competing drawings, impulses in my heart. So when Jesus said, you must be born of the Spirit, but later I'm going to baptize you with the Spirit, he's talking about the cleansing, the removal of that I withhold from him so that as he in the new birth comes into my heart in fullness in the sense of all of him, he in the baptism of the Spirit requires me as a condition for that to give him full possession of me. So I get the Holy Spirit when I'm born of the Spirit. He gets all of me when I am baptized with the Spirit. Now, let's, let me bypass a few other things and get to this greatest request we could ever make. It's in verse 13. That whole passage that begins with verse 1, which <clears throat> is teaching them how to pray the Lord's Prayer. Then he gives them this parable, this little illustration of a friend who has a traveler, traveling friend, suddenly appear at his door in the evening, and he needs a place to stay, and he needs something to eat, and he invites him in, and he discovers to his embarrassment and chagrin and disappointment, I don't have anything to give him. And so he goes next door to his neighbor and begs his neighbor let me have some bread that I can feed my friend that's shown up because my cupboard is bare. Now, Jesus always gave little physical stories, clear parables to teach us something spiritual. What he's describing there is his method of revealing to a Christian that I need the fullness of the Holy Spirit to fully possess me. I have some lack. How did the host recognize his cupboards were bare? Something unforeseen, something unpredictable came to him and it revealed my cupboards are empty. 
God does that, allows that, to believers. When we sign up with Jesus, we ask Him into our heart, we start walking as Christians, nine times out of ten, it seems like things are wonderful. We walk with God, answers of prayer just rain down on us. Every little thing seems to click for us because we're followers of Jesus. And we're very quick, rightly so, to recommend that to others and also to identify that. That's why things are going turned around for me. I got right with God. Jesus is in my heart. True. But Jesus wants me to want him ultimately for his sake. Not for what he gives me. Boy, I prayed for that job and it just came through. Yeah. I don't question God does it. But there, later on, he begins to test us a bit. He begins to stretch us a bit. And he allows us to have some spiritual events that come into our lives that show us I'm not as deep as I thought I was. I don't have as deep a reservoir of grace and peace and patience and kindness because I've, we're in a buffeting, beat-you-up world. And it will show up. And we'll begin to see in our own lives things that disappoint us. And the, how do we know it disappoints us? Because God is disappointed. Not mad, not angry, but read the disciples. And the, the Gospels. Did Jesus love those 12 guys? Oh, he loved them with all of his heart. Like us, he died for them. But how many times did he say, Oh, <clears throat> slow of heart to believe. Hard of heart. Can't you see? Why in the world don't you get it? And every time Jesus, of course, who is perfect, he doesn't get frustrated when there isn't a reason. Every, sing, every single time that he seemed to be frustrated with the disciples, what does it tell us? It tells us that he was not being unjustly frustrated. We often may be frustrated with, say, our children, but we make a mistake of what their capabilities are. I don't know. Maybe I'm finding fault with them, but they don't get it yet. Jesus doesn't make that mistake. So when he would rebuke the disciples, he knew exactly what their capabilities were. He didn't make a mistake, thinking that they could perform better than they were. He knew they could. He expected better. Had a right to expect better. But he didn't get it. He didn't see it. So he would rebuke them. And what would he do? Here's one of the cases. And there are many where he would point ahead. You need something more. You need what I am going to give once I rise from the dead. And that's the baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire to purge, to burn out of your heart the wobble in our walk. So, let me look then at just two requirements for us to make this request, to ask our Father in heaven to give us His Spirit in its 
in his fullness. One, it must be a legitimate request. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Number one, it's only a legitimate request to ask for the promise of the Spirit to fill my heart, cleanse me from any that hold back from God, and be all God's. First of all, to pray that prayer, I have to be a child of God. Jesus said in John 17, the world, meaning the unredeemed, the spiritually dead, cannot receive the Spirit of God. They've neither seen Him nor heard Him. There, I, I will repeat something else that I've said. There is not a single case in all of the New or the Old Testament where people are exhorted to seek the fullness of the Holy Spirit who didn't already have some degree of spiritual life. Sinners, dead in trespasses and sins, need not ask for the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That's not what they need then. <clears throat> they need to be brought to life. They need to be forgiven of their sins, which has estranged us from God. So, the first thing to be, for this to be a legitimate request, fill me, Lord, with your spirit. I have to be a Christian. I have to be a child of God. I have to know I've been born of the spirit. Being born of the spirit absolutely must precede being baptized with the spirit. Second, I somewhat mentioned this just a moment ago. I must be aware of my need of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I must recognize spiritually that my cupboards are bare. Like this midnight visitor revealed to his friend. I, there are spiritual drawdowns. There are spiritual peak power draws that we confront and we'll find in those kinds of times <clears throat> I come up short something so I'm lacking something so I must be a child of God I must be aware of my need the only reason you pray Lord give me the Holy Spirit in his fullness is I recognize a need no one makes a request for something uh, unless they have already recognized, I need this. Third, I must be convinced that this gift of the Holy Spirit is the will of God. Now, I could be here, well, you wouldn't be here. I could be here for a long time this morning. You wouldn't because you'd leave. Going through all of the whacked out fouled up doctrines, theories about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There are, I don't know how many, but there are a lot of them. They're all over the map. A lot of them have to do with what is called spiritual um, phenomena, signs and wonders and smackings on the forehead and all of that, and I, listen, maybe your dear grandmother was into that. 
she's going to go to heaven. She has a good heart. I'm not saying anything about grandma, okay? All of that stuff is nonsense. It's the nicest thing I can say. It is just nonsense. It is a diversion from the simple, straightforward request. Lord, I want you to possess me entirely. I want you to fill me with your spirit. That isn't crazy. You don't have to run the aisles, balance on the back of the chairs. None of that stuff. There's a deep, quiet singleness of heart. King David wrote Psalm 86. Great, great, little, simple, straightforward request. He said, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. Why do you ask for a united heart? Because you discovered it's divided. You discovered, like James, I'm double-souled. I am, as Paul said, I am yet carnal as a Christian. So knowing that I have a divided heart, not liking it, and wanting it to be united, I then pray for something that I, to some degree, have to believe is real. That it is God's will. That indeed, He did die so that He could pour out His Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And from there to today, this is our the privilege that we have of being both born of the Spirit and then being baptized with the Spirit. Finally, the fourth part of this being a legitimate request, that I have confidence in His character that He will give me the Holy Spirit if I ask Him. There's the simplicity and the kind of the quiet simplicity of just saying, Father, I see I have a need in my heart. There's a hunger in my heart for something more and something clearer and cleaner than I have. Would you fill that need in my heart and cleanse my heart of all that would be of self and that would get in the way of the free Lord? Thy will be done. Period. I know it's hard to imagine, but the grace of God can enable this. It's the, it's the Job religion. It's the religion Job had. God said, Job's got a perfect heart. Now, does that mean he never made any mistakes? That's what he's, not, he's not talking about that. He's saying it's a united, single-purposed heart. And how did Job demonstrate that? He went through all of that hardship, all of the loss, the tragedy, and finally got down to where the devil couldn't do anything more with a guy who said this. Even if he kills me, I'll trust him. If you're the devil, what do you do do with a guy like that? How do you tempt him? That's what the fullness of the Spirit enables us to say and mean.
So it has to be a legitimate request. I've got to be a Christian. I've got to know that this, I have a need. I've got to know that God's will is to fill that need and trust Him that He will. Then the second question, or second point about this, it must be an intelligent request. All I mean by that is I have to have some sense, not a lot, but some sense of what I'm asking for so I know what to expect. What's God, what am I asking Him to do and what will He do? One, I have to have some intelligence, some intelligence that He comes in to fully possess my heart. So when I make that request, I am also saying, Lord, here's the keys to my house. Here's the, here's the deed. Here's everything. I, don't, I will now continue to live here, but I don't own this. And we, a lot of times, all through Christianity, people talk about we need to surrender to God. Surrender, that's true. But in a sense, what we're surrendering to God is in a sense a fantasy that we ever have ownership to surrender in the first place. Does that make any sense? We tell people, you need to surrender your life to God. Yes, but it's fake that I own it in the first place. So am I doing God a favor when I say, Lord, I give you my life and God's supposed to swoon you know what I mean and the angels are supposed to clap and God's man alive you don't know how much I appreciate that he, he owns me in the first place it's totally fake that I run my life we try that's what we get in trouble for but we really don't I can't Jesus said you can't add one hour to the length of your life, no matter what you do, you can't change one hair of your head by fretting or willing. Or I don't own my life. So really what I do is I give up on the fantasy that I own me. And I give to God what he already knows that I own you. I own you. So I'm just coming around to recognize the truth. I'm not doing God some huge favor. When we then ask God, ask the Father, fill me with your spirit, I am also saying I give you utter full possession to do with me what you want. You change my agendas. You change my plans. I have expected this. It may not happen. You may have a completely different route for me to go. That's fine. Thy will be done. Best place we can be. You know that? And the fear is, I tell you what, if we give everything over to God, He's going to do whoever thinks, when our heart is divided, whoever thinks, you give yourself to God, and he's going to give you peace and joy and power and strength to resist the devil and to stay walking with God, make it to heaven. Who thinks that? Nobody, hardly. 
You give yourself to God, oh, I tell you what, it's going to kill your wife, take your kids, teeth are going to fall out, make you go to be a missionary in the darkest jungle somewhere, and you'll be eaten by the lions. I'll tell you what, where does that come from? It comes from the very thing that God wants to cleanse out of my heart, which is a spontaneous suspicion of God's motives. That started at the garden. So really, our problem is not so much one of holding on. It's really unbelief. I'm protecting myself from God because I think he'll only do bad stuff, hard stuff. That's why it is so critical to know that he comes in not only to fully possess, but he comes in to purify our hearts of that spontaneous, can't shut it up, little voice of question, doubt, suspicion. God can take that out of our heart. We'll look, the Lord willing, next week at Pentecost Sunday, Acts 2. What a radical change, those disciples, especially Peter, the guy that 50 days earlier said, I don't even know who Jesus is. Amazing what God did in his heart and can do in ours. So he comes in to possess, he comes in to purify, and then finally, and let me say this to you too, God's full possession and his purifying of our hearts, that is done in a moment. An act of faith receives it. I was, none of us here that are Christians were converted over well, I'm still being converted. I'm not, all my sins are forgiven. Most, some of them, you know, are forgiven every day and the, the list is being whittled down. And I, No, we know when I gave my heart to Jesus. That occurred at a point in time. So also, the day of Pentecost was a day. It wasn't a lifetime. It was a day. In fact, if you want to get specific, do you know when Peter said, I'm jumping ahead, but when Peter said, God purified my heart, was 9 o'clock in the morning on the day of Pentecost. Is that specific enough? Well, it's a lifelong, nobody's ever really purified. Wait a minute. It was 9 o'clock in the morning on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem in an upper room with 120 other people. He said our hearts, our hearts, all of us, were purified by faith. Now, the third thing, he comes in to possess, to purify, and to portray. What do I mean by that? His purpose is to fully own, fully cleanse us, so that he can, through us in our lives, in our mouths, in our actions, in our affections, that he can show Christ-likeness to the rest of the world. That's his aim. Make a whole bunch of little Christs. That's what 1 John talks about. That we're to be, in the old, the old the Greek word is from which we get Xerox. Facsimile. He wants to make us a, a little Jesus. That does not occur in a moment. That's a lifetime of refining and molding and teaching and guiding and maturing us because in a moment he was able to possess and purify us. The question then is, 
do we recognize we have a need? Is it something that we need to ask God to do in our hearts? Do we fully believe that he can and will do what he ordered us to do? He'll answer any prayer he told us to pray. Let's bow our heads. Before we uh, dismiss, just want to ask us to think, let the Holy Spirit talk to us, and surely He has, He's faithful. If there's any heart here, and I'm speaking specifically to those, you already know, I know I'm a Christian. I love Jesus, I'm walking with Him, do my best to obey Him. When I foul up, I ask Him to forgive me. I'm, I'm walking with Him. I sense that I have something I may not even be able to put my finger on, but I sense that I have a need. And this baptism with the Holy Spirit seems to fit the bill of what I need. I've never really prayed that prayer and sensed that it was answered. Would you pray for me that God will clarify things for me even more? Help me know my heart and bring me to the place where I understand enough that I can pray that Jesus would baptize me with his spirit, fill my whole heart. Anybody just slip your hand up, keep it up long enough so that I can remember to pray for you. That's what I think I need. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Any more? All right. Others? God is for us. And if He's for us, who can be against us? Father in heaven, in the quiet of this room, in the quiet of this sanctuary, as every Sunday, Lord, I know you're at work. I often pray for myself and for the congregation, Lord, that you would help us where we need help and meet us where we need met. And I believe, as always, Lord, you're in the process of doing that. I also pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what we need from you and your truth. And I know that you're doing that. But, Lord, there is a time when we bump up against this, as we know from the story of the father who needed his son healed. He told Jesus, if you can do this, and Jesus' comment, if I can, all things are possible for those who believe, is what he told that man. And then that man's confession to the Lord was, help me with my unbelief. Father, I pray that for each person in here this morning who might be battling with this idea of a purified heart. But help us to remember this. Simply help us to remember that your goal is for us to be like Christ. And Christ never doubted the work of the Father. And the reason why he never doubted the work of the Father is because he had a purified heart. Lord, this is not rocket science. Help us not to make this harder than what it is. Help us to, as we walk by faith in our salvation, help us to walk by faith in a 
purified, sanctified heart as well. So, Lord, help us where we need help. Meet us where we need met. Help us with our unbelief. And help us to believe that all things are possible for those who believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Love you guys. You're dismissed. Have a great day, everybody.